0: Why Mental Health Providers Should Think Twice Before Credentialing with Health Insurance Ramifications for Therapists, Clients, and the Field of Mental Health Written by Brianna Mann, PhD Reasons Providers Credential with Health Insurance The reasons why providers credential with insurance companies are reasonable. First, credentialing with health insurance is the status quo. It's what everyone does. Second, credentialing is one way to ensure that providers have a steady referral stream without having to do a lot of outside marketing. Third, credentialing with insurance allows providers to provide access to care to a wide demographic of individuals, including those who might not be able to afford therapy out of pocket. Fourth, the benefits of credentialing compensate for skills deficits and fears most mental health providers have. A. Few therapists know how to market or run a small business, because these are not skills taught in graduate school. Therapists have little confidence in succeeding in marketing and business management. B. In fact, these are skills that are discouraged both both explicitly and implicitly throughout therapist training. Marketing and running a business that makes money are seen as bad, and running a charitable practice with affordable fees and pro bono work is seen as good. C. Many therapists are incredulous that potential clients who have already purchased a health insurance plan will be willing to pay out of pocket for an additional service. D. Scarcity motivates providers, especially those just starting out, to accept whatever they can get. Some money is better than no money. I'm certainly familiar with these rationales and fears, and I don't fault anyone for utilizing these rationales and trying to mitigate their fears. I do, however, think it's time to critically examine the ramifications of credentialing with insurance for mental health providers, clients, and the field of mental health, for the purpose of making an informed decision about whether to continue this practice. Reason for source anonymity. To gather information for this article, I conducted a literature review and interviewed healthcare professionals. One provision of the health insurance contract states that credentialed providers are not allowed to discuss the specifics of their contracts, and if they do discuss these specifics, they jeopardize the contracts. As such, many of the healthcare professionals I spoke with required an- anonymity as a condition of their interview. I'm respecting this by not including their names. A Discussion of the Gag Order Placed by Insurance Companies on Providers Prohibiting Discussion of Contract Specifics is another article entirely. I pointed out briefly to encourage critical thinking regarding the motivation for a gag order. Why would someone in power prohibit someone they have power over from a constitutional right, freedom of speech? If you don't know yet, maybe you'll get a better idea as you read this article. At any rate, I appreciate my sources' bravery and being willing to discuss anything at all with me. The business of healthcare has turned healthcare into a business, not healthcare. Deregulation of healthcare and a conflict of interest. In 1983, something happened that would change the landscape of healthcare in America forever. The Reagan administration deregulated healthcare. Specifically, this deregulation changed how providers were reimbursed for healthcare delivery costs. Previously, third party reimbursement for healthcare to providers and larger entities, like hospitals, utilized a relative cost metric. Reimbursement rates were based upon the provider's cost to provide the service, along with a bit more to provide profit, which seems logical, linking reimbursement amount with actual service cost. With the changes to the law, the insurers changed their reimbursement reimbursement metric from a relative rate to a fixed rate for each service, irrespective of true cost. If a service costs $100 to administer, the provider would no longer receive $100 plus profit they would receive a fixed rate predetermined by the third-party payer, the insurance company. And if the, and if the fixed rate was lower, for example, $80, the provider lost money. Now, rather than operating according to best practices and being reimbursed for the cost of operating according to those practices, providers were motivated to avoid a loss and a conflict of interest developed. Operate according to best practice practices and potentially lose money, or cut costs and operate as well as you can within those cost constraints. The change in reimbursement metric turned healthcare from a service industry into a business and significantly increased third party payers' profit margins. Not only did reimbursement metrics change, many aspects of healthcare became for profit, catering to investors rather than consumers. A power differential If a conflict of interest develops between profit and best practices, there would need to be a regulatory system to ensure that consumers aren't har- harmed by such a conflict. But in order for such a system to function, several conditions would need to be met. First, consumers would need to be aware that a conflict of interest with the potential to cause harm exists. And I'm not entirely sure that most consumers are aware of how healthcare deregulation in the 1980s has affected them. Second, someone would need to draw attention to the conflict of interest and ask for change. Third, that someone's voice would need to be loud enough for someone else to take action. Whose voice is typically louder, the average American consumer or a multi-billion dollar industry? Fourth, a mechanism would need to exist for holding the industry or company accountable. Under the Obama administration, there was a cabinet position for consumer protection. The funding for that position has since been eliminated. Fifth, even if the industry or company is held accountable for a specific incident, how likely is it that large-scale changes will be made? Further, what is the likelihood that all of these conditions will be met? And what typically happens when powerful, wealthy individuals or entities get into trouble? The problem here is a huge power differential between the average American consumer and the health insurance industry. This power differential renders consumers defenseless to protect themselves and ask for change. The goal of health insurance is not to help you, it's to make money, an ingenious formula with a low ROI for consumers. The health insurance industry, their goal is not to help consumers, it's to make money. I don't think this is really a secret. That's capitalism. But it's important for consumers to remember this fact when they're spending five figures on a policy to cover their healthcare expenses. What consumers also need to remember is that the product they are buying has an incredibly low return on investment, or ROI, and is designed for the purpose of having an incredibly low ROI. That's called the insurance company's profit margin. Do you know how health insurance companies make money? It's a pretty simple formula. Insurance costs to consumers need to be greater than reimbursed healthcare expenses. On average, insurance companies need to collect more money in premiums than they pay out to consumers in healthcare expenses. It's no secret that this is how this works, but for some reason, many of us consumers have it in our heads that using insurance gets us a good deal on our health care. It doesn't. In fact, insurance companies call consumers' medical expenses their, quote, medical loss ratio, in other words, having to pay for the service consumers purchase from them is seen by the insurance companies as a loss, not as providing a service. Their hope is that consumers won't use their service, and if they do, it's seen as a loss. I know that many insurers file their taxes as nonprofit entities, but consumers should know that nonprofit doesn't mean a company doesn't make any money. Nonprofit status means the company, quote, uses its surplus of the revenues to further achieve its ultimate objective rather than distributing its income to the organization's shareholders, leaders, or members. So the insurance companies can make a profit, they just can't distribute it to shareholders. Rather, they must use it to achieve their ultimate objective. What is the ultimate objective of the health insurance companies? To minimize their medical loss ratio? I really don't know. That would probably be an important question to answer. A very curious fact is that the nonprofit health insurance companies' CEOs sure seem to make a lot of money? According to a Minnesota Star Tribune article, the state-level CEOs of the insurance giants Blue Cross, Health Partners, Medica, and UCare made $3.1, $2.4, $2.1, $929,900 respectively in 2017, and these are just their base salaries. When stock options and other perks are factored in, you can take the base salary, double it, and then some. And then add a zero to the end. For example, in 2017, United Health Group's executive chair made a base salary of $1.2 million. But with stocks and perks, total compensation was $26,975,932. How the ingenious formula impacts consumers' care. If low ROI was the upshot of Americans purchasing and utilizing health insurance plans to cover health care expenses, that would be disheartening in and of itself. Unfortunately, low ROI is not the upshot. The upshot of Americans purchasing and utilizing health insurance plans is that the deregulation of health care and the insurance industry have turned health care into a business, not a service. And the medical care that consumers receive is suboptimal as a result. Let me summarize. When people purchase insurance, one, they lose money. And two, their healthcare is suboptimal. I don't know about other consumers, but for me, there are only certain areas I'll accept suboptimal, like my vehicle or internet carrier, and other areas I certainly won't, my healthcare and my oxygen quality. A new era of healthcare, assembly line care. The changes that resulted from the deregulation of healthcare in the 1980s turned healthcare into a business, a factory, if you will and turn talented medical doctors into assembly line workers. Mental health providers are on the same trajectory. Remember, the deregulation led to a change in the insurance reimbursement metric, such, as a, such, that, such that the services are reimbursed at a fixed rate, determined by the insurance company, rather than the actual cost of services, and this led to a conflict of interest for providers and healthcare systems. Provide care according to best practices and potentially lose money, or cut costs and provide care as best you can within those cost constraints. At a basic level, this involves maximizing billable time and minimizing overhead, including unbillable time, medical services with low profit margins, additional staff, etc. Even prior to deregulation, the health insurance industry was motivated to maximize profit margins. The problem that was created with deregulation was now both the insurance company and the provider or healthcare system were motivated to decrease costs and maximize profit margins. And the pressure placed on the provider or healthcare system by the insurance company to cut their costs led to a conflict of interest, which has resulted in a decrease in the quality of medical care provided in this country. Indeed, the U.S. is now ranked number one in healthcare expenditure, but number 37 in healthcare system performance. Assembly line care in the field of physical medicine, assessment and diagnosis. The employees of the insurance companies, the doctors and the healthcare systems, are expected to conduct an efficient diagnostic assessment and provide an economically efficient treatment option, usually in under 15 minutes. After that, the provider is expected to complete another diagnostic assessment and provide a treatment option in under 15 minutes, and another diagnostic assessment and treatment option after that, and another diagnostic assessment and treatment option after that, ad nauseum. Not only does this place a tremendous amount of pressure on doctors, it's not very effective. Not effective, but very efficient, and that is the point. I know that an accurate diagnostic assessment for mental health is not possible within 15 minutes. The intake assessment usually takes around two to three hours, and assessment is an ongoing process throughout the course of treatment. Physical medicine is no less complicated, but yet the diagnostic and treatment processes have been severely abbreviated as a result of the insurance company's reimbursement policies. The Western Medical Model in health insurance, impact on policies and ultimately patient care. Not only are assessment and treatment abbreviated in physical medicine, other treatment practices are dictated by the insurance company's policies, not best practices. Western medicine is designed to diagnose and treat problems at the pathogenic level, which means that the problem needs to progress to the expressed disease state before it can be identified and treated. Unfortunately, the issue is that the problem has already done a great deal of damage to the body at this point, and the damage is not always reversible, nor is the problem treatable at this point. The point at which a patient benefits most from treatment intervention is earlier on, when the symptoms are more diffuse. Further, Western medicine is designed to treat treat symptoms of disorder, not necessarily the underlying problem. So even after the problem's symptoms have manifested, the actual problem often goes untreated. Quite obviously, the patient benefits most from the treatment of the underlying problem, not the symptoms, but this isn't how the Western medical system is set up. And nothing against the Western medical system. It certainly has excellent merits. These are just the drawbacks. There are schools of medicine, like Ayurveda, and health interventions like nutrition and health coaching designed to treat underlying problems prior to pathogenesis. But the insurance industry will not cover these treatments. For example, type 2 diabetes can be treated much more effectively early on and even prevented by coaching interventions addressing diet and exercise. The problem is that our system is set up to wait until the actual disease has manifested before treatment, including diet, exercise, and synthetic insulin administration, begins. At that point, insurance will reimburse diagnostic and treatment costs. Prior to that point, insurance will not cover effective treatments like health coaching or Ayurveda medical interventions. The insurance reimbursement system is set up to favor the Western medical model of diagnosis and treatment of the problem's symptoms, not the actual problem, when the problem reaches the pathogenic level. Further, even after the problem becomes pathogenic an insurance is willing to cover treatment, the treatments are controlled by what the insurance company is willing to cover, and are complicated by the economic motivations of drug dispensaries, as are pharmacies. For example, Trentalix is a drug that works for both depression and anxiety, which are commonly comorbid conditions, and is superior to a similar drug in its class, Effexor, Venlafaxine, because it does not does not have the sleep side effects that Effexor does. And as we know, those who suffer from depression and anxiety often experience sleep problems. So prescribing a drug that that compounds their sleep problems is contraindicated. Unfortunately, the insurance companies require patients to have failed in the generic of Effexert, venlafaxine, which is cheaper prior prior to authorizing treatment for Trintelix. Alternatively, in order to avoid the sleep problem and follow the insurance company's requirements, the prescriber could prescribe three medications, one for depression, one for anxiety, and one for sleep, rather than prescribing one drug, Trintelix. The prescriber is not allowed to practice according to best practices, and the client does not receive the best treatment because of the reimbursement rules dictated by the insurance companies. This is the type of care that consumers receive when they purchase a health care service from a third-party payer. The business of healthcare care and your pharmacist. Further thwarting patients' receipt of superior drug treatments are the pharmacies. The pharmacies and pharmacists are incentivized to sell generic medications. When a consumer's pharmacist informs them that there's a generic of the medica- medication they've been prescribed, it seems like they are doing the consumer a favor by saving them money. In fact, they are saving the consumer money, but the consumer might not be getting the same drug they are prescribed, rather a similar medication from the same drug class, which may or may not be as effective as the drug they were prescribed. And the part the consumer does not often realize is that the pharmacy's profit margin is greater for generics than brand name drugs, so pharmacies are motivated to sell generic medications over name brands. Just as the generic is cheaper for patients to buy, it's also cheaper for pharmacies to buy, and they have more room to mark the drug drug up for profit than they do with brand name drugs, which are already quite expensive. This is why pharmacists push the sale of generics. One of my sources informed me that pharmacists don't just push the sale of generics, they will actually tell patients that their insurance company won't cover their brand name drug, so they will need to go with the generic. Or they'll tell patients that they can't get the drug in stock or that it'll take several weeks to get the drug in their formulary, which isn't true. The truth is that the patient needs a prior authorization in order to get the brand name drug, but the pharmacy withholds that information oftentimes and tells them that the drug isn't covered or that they can't get it in the formulary. Assembly line care in the field of mental health. Assessment and diagnosis. In mental health, a diagnostic process typically takes two to three hours and continues throughout treatment. Insurance only allows reimbursement for one 53-minute session of diagnostic assessment. So any diagnostic assessment conducted after the initial session must be billed at the lower rate designated for therapy sessions. Providers are forced to either cram a 2-3 hour assessment process into 53 minutes or take a financial loss and provide a diagnostic assessment service at a lower rate. Arguably, a provider is not going to be as effective in providing an accurate diagnosis and formulating a treatment plan within a period of time that does not follow best practices. And it's unfair to expect a provider to conduct an assessment over the time period prescribed by best practices with the trade-off of accepting a lower pay rate. Further, how does this impact the provider's feelings towards the client and the therapeutic alliance? Does the the therapist feel some twinges of resentment about being undervalued by both the insurance company and the client? The Western medical model, how it influences insurance policies and ultimately patient care and mental health. As with physical medicine and mental health, not only is assessment abbreviated, other treatment practices are dictated by insurance company policy, not best practices. Psychology also uses the Western medical model to diagnose and treat mental health concerns at the pathogenic level, which is necessary to receive reimbursement from insurance. Under this model, mental health disorder is made up of a constellation of expressed symptoms. Practically speaking, this means that providers must pathologize a survivor's experience of abuse, neglect, or other trauma by labeling the individual as disordered. And as with physical medicine, Western physical medicine, that is, Many mental health interventions are designed to treat symptoms of disorder, not necessarily the underlying problem. So the actual problem often goes untreated. For example, with specific phobia, like arachnophobia, the presenting problem is a fear of spiders. The Western approach would be to utilize a cognitive behavioral protocol designed to address the fear of spiders and the other symptoms that go along with that, such as panic attacks or avoidance. However, as with physical conditions, the presenting problem is not usually the underlying problem. A fear of spiders is what we call a safe fear. It's a controllable, concrete, external manifestation of a deeper problem, usually abuse, neglect, or another trauma. The deeper deeper problem is too terrifying to address, so the mind finds elaborate ways to manage the fear by displacing it on an object or creature such as a spider. Psychotherapy can certainly address the underlying problem, but the insurance system views these issues according to the Western medical model, the disease state model, diagnosis, treatment, and reimbursement have been tailored accordingly. Practically speaking, this means that a provider must diagnose and treat a mental health disorder even if it's clear the person's symptoms result from abuse, neglect, or other trauma, the actual problem. Otherwise, the insurance system will not cover treatment. Frequency and duration of therapy, length of sessions, type of treatment, and not just diagnosis of problem as disordered but allowable disorder diagnoses for treatment length are all dictated by what the insurance company will cover. Some insurance plans will allow for more than one session per week, and some allow only one. And even if a client buys coverage with unlimited mental health sessions allowing for increased therapy frequency and duration, there are loopholes that prevent this coverage from being truly unlimited. For example, requiring regular written reports from the provider about client progress to determine if treatment continues to be, quote, medically necessary. Treatment of underlying problems like trauma, rather than the treatment of expressed disorder symptoms, require time and deep, complex interventions that do not fit within the brief disease state treatment models insurance companies proclaim are sufficient. Some insurance companies will not reimburse for the standard 53-minute therapy hour and will only reimburse 38-minute sessions. For other companies, a 53-minute session is covered if a client has a certain diagnosis. This means that in order for a client to get the standard therapy hour, their provider needs to diagnose them with a condition that the insurance company has decided is severe enough to warrant a standard therapy hour. If they do not meet criteria for such a diagnosis, they cannot receive a standard hour of therapy. In some cases, the insurance contract has clauses potentially allowing longer treatment durations or session lengths if the provider wants to complete a prior authorization. But this is extra unpaid work that's placed on the provider, and there is no guarantee that the prior authorization will be approved. In response to health insurance's managed care restraints on treatment, providers began, researchers, researchers began to develop briefer symptom-focused treatment protocols to provide clients with some level of relief. Although these protocols have their merits and are helpful to alleviate distress in clients, they are not sufficient for many conditions and do not always address the underlying problem. This is by no fault of the treatment protocol. The treatment protocols are not designed to address the underlying problem. They are designed to address the symptomatology of an expressed disease state, just like most Western medical interventions. Curiously, even when providers utilize these protocols, developed to address insurance's managed care constraints on mental health treatment, The insurance companies place further constraints on care. These gold standard treatment protocols that researchers have developed and tested in clinical trial research assume a standard 53-minute session, and as I discussed, not all insurance companies allow standard sessions. And some protocols, like prolonged exposure therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, which is actually designed to treat the underlying problem, that is, a traumatic event, rather than symptom presentation, require 90-minute sessions which are not covered by insurance. The session lengths allowed by the insurance companies fall short of what's required by the gold standard treatment protocols developed through rigorous clinical trials. And providers are not able to provide clients with the best care available. Furthermore, a source revealed to me that insurance companies believe therapists are taking too long with clients and should be billing the minimum time necessary for procedures like physicians do. More specifically, they believe that therapists should never see clients for a full 53-minute session and should only rarely see clients for the three-quarter length sessions, the 38- to 52-minute session lengths. Furthermore, the full to three-quarter length sessions are viewed by the insurance company as extended sessions and should only be necessary for the first few sessions. After that, sessions should never be longer than 16- to 37 minutes following more of a maintenance model and adhering to the minimum time necessary billing standard that physicians use. In my experience, the less than 15-minute consultation session I get with a medical doctor is not enough time to gather information for an accurate diagnosis and get my questions answered. For mental health care, designed to be a deep, introspective process requiring high levels of self-disclosure and trust, a 16-minute session is an abomination not to mention the fact that it's around a quarter of a standard therapy session, 44 minutes shy of what's recommended by treatment protocols. So, even after attempts to adapt to insurance's managed care constraints by developing and utilizing briefer symptom-targeting protocols, providers are still literally not able to provide individual clients with the best level of individualized care. Insurance companies control the type, amount, and frequency of treatment consumers are given. a rigged system. As mentioned earlier, the goal of health insurance is to take in more in premiums from consumers than they pay out in claims. In other words, the goal is to minimize their medical loss ratio. This is how they make a profit. It's not fair to fault a business for trying to make a profit, but what also isn't fair is that many people are under the impression that the insurance system is fair and designed to help them. This is a fallacy. Your insurance company cannot make money and ensure that you get your money's worth out of your health insurance policy. These are diametrical goals. Consumers need to understand this. And providers need to understand this, too, because the implication for providers is that their employer's goal is to pay them as little as possible. Indeed, in a Kentucky Supreme Court case, Judge Osborne said, Ambiguity and incomprehensibility seem to be the favorite tools of the insurance trade in drafting policies. It seems that insurers generally are attempting to convince the consumer when selling the policy that everything is covered and convince the court when a claim is made that nothing is covered. The miracle of it all is that the English language can be subjected to such abuse and still remain an instrument of communication. Further, insurance companies utilize software programs nicknamed denial engines to go through claims and find clerical errors so they can increase the rate of legitimately rejected claims. What's more, A source informed me that the highest rates of claims denials were for mental health services and cancer treatment among private insurers. I don't want to jump to any conclusions about why these particular types of claims might have the highest denial rates, but I certainly have some ideas about this, and those of you reading this probably do too. Perhaps high expense to treat, high medical loss ratio, and limited ability of these populations to fight these claims denials might have something to do with this? I believe John Grisham wrote a fictional novel addressing these hypotheses. The source's information is not an aberration. In 2014, CBS's 60 Minutes aired an expose on mental health claim denials by health insurance companies. They found that the 11 doctors contracted by Anthem to review mental health claims had a denial rate averaging 90%. This denial rate persisted even when providers pleaded with the insurance claims reviewers to authorize additional care because of medical necessity. Following premature termination by the insurance company, a provider recommended mental health care. Some of these patients died from causes linked to their conditions. Disconcertingly, denials of such high-risk patients are common. Almost a quarter of all patients with chronic or persistent illnesses experience claims denials. And of these individuals, when their illness rose to the category of serious, The denial rate rose to 70%. What's more, the rate of claim appeal is very low. Data is scant, but one piece of evidence suggests that only a half of a percent of denied claims are appealed. However, the reversal rate of claims denials is high, 40% on average, leading some, such as McKinnon Law Group, to state, This means health insurers routinely make the wrong decision and hope that their insureds do not pursue pursue these claims denials. Consumers are purchasing a third-party service to cover the medical expenses, and those consumers who who need it most aren't allowed to reap the benefits of a service they paid for in good faith. How are mental health and medical providers supposed to provide treatment when the system is rigged? And knowing this, why do we want to participate in a system where we and our clients are set up to lose? Sustainability of the current third-party payer system, financial, and interpersonal concerns. If healthcare is more expensive with insurance, why do consumers buy insurance? The power of fear. Not only does insurance offer a poor ROI and discourages best medical practices, I would argue that it actually makes healthcare more expensive. Healthcare is generally more expensive because the healthcare system is set up to be supported by the health insurance industry. When health insurance supports the healthcare system, consumers must pay the overhead of three entities: their doctor, their insurance company, and the billing person their doctor pays to navigate the convoluted claims process in order to receive payment from a third party. Business Economics 101 would tell tell most of us that the best way to cut costs would be to cut out the middleman, the health insurance industry. So why do consumers buy their product if, logically, it's such a terrible investment and it increases the cost of healthcare? Well, why do consumers do a lot of irrational things? Why do humans do a lot of irrational things? Fear. Fear and the invisible power of the status quo. Everyone is afraid that they will have the $100,000 or $1 million healthcare problem and they won't be able to afford treatment, will die or bankrupt their family. That fear is valid. No one wants to die because they can't afford medical treatment and no one wants to bankrupt their family. The problem is, in those instances in which consumers need a $100,000 or $1 million medical treatment, there's still no guarantee that it will be covered by insurance. In fact, as discussed above, Those with serious illnesses had a very high claim denial rate, and many of those delayed or even forewent treatment because insurance denied their claims. Further, many insurance plans have caps on medical expenses, usually around a million dollars, so if and when consumers reach this amount, they lose coverage. If, rather than purchasing health insurance, consumers budgeted consumers budgeted for healthcare expenses each year and put that money into a savings account or conservative mutual fund, they would end up with enough to cover that unexpected and highly unlikely medical expense. For example, if consumers put $4,000 into a mutual fund with a 10% growth rate from ages 25 to 65, they would have almost $2 million at age 65, rather than literally throwing that money away each year on an insurance plan that is set up to take in more than it pays out. The power of the status quo. The power of the status quo also explains why consumers continue to engage in the irrational behavior of buying healthcare at a financial loss via insurance. Consumers overlook the status quo because it's omnipresent and entrenched, essentially rendering it invisible. In order to make the invisible visible, it needs to occur to consumers that there is something important to see and there needs to be a reason to look. Hopefully, this article has already established that there is something to see. So now the question is why? Why do consumers buy health insurance? Because it's financially beneficial? Because it allows consumers the best level of medical care? The previous arguments have established that neither of those conditions are true. So why do consumers purchase and carry health insurance? Consumers carry health insurance because they are afraid. And also because that is what is done, what everyone does, what everyone is supposed to do in order to receive health care. That is the status quo. Just because carrying health insurance is what is done, what everyone does, and what you are supposed to do, doesn't mean that it must be so or that it's a good idea. I think that it's pretty clear that purchasing health insurance is not financially beneficial, but people's fears and the momentum of the status quo are strong. Most consumers don't seek to, seek to question how or why things are done, and if they do, they are often met with disapproval. Why would you do that? That's not what people do. Such is the nature of challenging the status quo. Even if the status quo is successfully challenged, the next step is figuring out what to do instead. How to fill the vacuum left by the status quo. This is where many get stuck if they've made it this far, and then begin retreating back to the status quo. How am I going to go to the doctor if I don't have health insurance? This is how things are done. I do not know what to do instead. The answer seems so simple, yet it's striking how many consumers cannot fathom an answer to this question pay for medical expenses directly with the money you would use to purchase an insurance plan and start a savings or investment account to cover future future medical expenses. Consumers will save a small fortune using this approach. In fact, some doctors actually offer a discount to people paying with cash because they don't have to pay a billing person to process the claim, cover insurance claims losses for other patients, cover the overhead of the insurance company, or cover the overhead of a large hospital. Health insurance facilitates the undervaluing and unsustainability of mental health care. Now, I discussed the fact that health care is generally more expensive because of the insurance industry. There is one segment of health care that's disproportionately inexpensive, mental health care. To those who are not mental health care providers, this might come as welcome news, especially given, that the, given the mental health care crisis that we have in this country. Yay, mental health care is affordable, problem solved. I would argue that the undervalued nature of mental health care actually contributes to the mental health crisis. Our current insurance-driven Western medical model of mental health care is, one, undervalued and financially unsustainable, and two, as discussed earlier, has turned mental health care into a business, not health care. Mental health care is undervalued, and according to basic social psychology, we have a cognitive bias that says expensive equals good or valuable, and inexpensive equals bad or not valuable. According to this bias, low reimbursement rates would lead people to lead people to believe that mental health care is not a valuable service. This conveys the message that mental health is not as valuable as physical health, or even as most people's even as valuable as most people's monthly car payment. Our system is financially unsustainable because providers are paid poorly for the work they do. The annual salary per year per years of education is astonishingly low. There's a large discrepancy in pay for identical services between mental health providers and medical providers. The overhead is high compared to reimbursement rates. The costs of training are high. And many of the hours of required work are not reimbursed. And there's no guarantee of payment or timely payment. And contracts are limited. Mental health providers are paid poorly compared to other professionals. MD versus PhD salary. Table 1 below highlights salaries across several professions. These are salaried positions, so they're not directly tied to insurance reimbursements, but I include these to illustrate the incredibly low pay rate for mental health professionals compared to other professionals. Later, I will discuss the insurance reimbursement rates for mental health, factoring in overhead. These rates are much lower than the average salary listed for a PhD-level psychologist and MA-level therapist, and ultimately are lower than the pay rates for every other profession listed in Table 1. Let's take a look at what certain professionals are paid, and let's consider whether mental health providers' wages are fair. According to payscale.com, doctoral-level psychologists make an average of $74,000 per year, and master's-level therapists make an average of $43,000 per year. By comparison, psychiatrists make an average of $195,000 per year. Physicians in the lowest-paid medical specialty, family medicine, make an average of $175,000 per year. The table also highlights required years of education to practice in each field. As illustrated, doctoral-level psychologists are required to complete one year less training than a family physician and make only two-fifths of the salary that a family physician makes. This is a major discrepancy for only one year of training. MD versus PhD, discrepancy in reimbursement for the same service. Further highlighting the discrepancy in pay between physical medicine and mental health is a direct comparison of reimbursement rates between MDs and mental health providers for the same mental health service. When billing for the same service physicians are reimbursed 50% more by the insurance companies than therapists. This is very surprising given the fact that the same service is performed And it's especially surprising, and dare I say disconcerting, that the individual with the highest level of training in a given service area, the therapist, is paid 50% less than the individual with virtually no training in a given service area, the physician. physician. If you look at the inverse, therapists providing medical services, such as medication management, in which therapists have very little training, just as a medical doctor has very little training in providing therapy, therapists are prohibited from performing the service at all and will most definitely not receive reimbursement for providing the service. Therapist versus life coach discrepancy in salary for similar services. I didn't include life, life coaches' salaries in the table below, but I think it's important to note that there's a discrepancy in salary here, given that they provide similar services. By definition, Life coaching is the process of helping people identify and achieve personal goals. Although life coaches may have studied counseling psychology or related subjects, a life coach does not act as a therapist, counselor, or mental health care provider. And psychological intervention lies outside the scope of life coaching. In other words, therapists provide the same services as coaches and much more. Therapists have received required specialized training in human behavior and therapeutic interventions. If logic drove the world, I would conclude that therapists must receive a much higher salary than coaches, given their level of training, the liability involved with their jobs, and the breadth and depth of services they're able to provide. As it is, logic does not drive the world. In a brief search of coaching services in the Twin Cities metro area, I found that coaches may or may not have advanced degrees, offered similar services to therapists, with the exception that therapists provide a breadth and depth of services that coaches are unable to provide, and charge between $200 and $667 per session hour for their services. By comparison, as I will discuss below, insurance will reimburse no more than $130 for a PhD-level therapist in general. Therapy rates ranging from $200 to $667 per session hour are virtually non-existent, even in the private pay sector. Initially, this discovery made me feel very resentful towards life coaches, the insurance companies, and society for undervaluing our profession. After tracking down the source of my resentment and seeking to understand it, I realized that there's no need to use my energy on resentment. Rather, there's some very valuable information in this discrepancy. Specifically, people do value the services therapists provide and are willing to pay a healthy out-of-pocket rate for them. The mental health field can learn from life coaches about how to market services and advocate for better rates of pay. Discrepancies in salary between mental health and other professionals. Individuals in other professions with equivalent or fewer years of required training than required for for doctoral level or master's level mental health professionals make substantially higher salaries, such as medical doctors, as I discussed above, attorneys, and investment bankers. If you look only at master's level therapists, every profession listed, with the exception of a dog trainer, makes a higher or equivalent salary. And even a dog trainer doesn't make much less than a the therapist. And remember, when we look at insurance-based salaries, every profession listed makes more than a master's and doctoral-level therapist. To better compare education by salary, education level by salary, I've included a figure for annual salary for per year of education. It's commonly thought that a higher education increases overall salary and appears to be financially advantageous over time. But in the one-year snapshots highlighted in this table, annual salary per years of education does not appear to be a good investment of time or money. This is most notable for graduate degrees in mental health, and especially for master's level therapists, who make similar or lower salary than those with similar or fewer years of higher education, such as attorneys, investment bankers, insurance brokers, commercial truck drivers, machinists, and psychics. Let me highlight one discrepancy in particular. The person who sells consumers their insurance policy makes more than their master's level therapist and makes only $14,000 less than their doctoral level therapist, despite the therapist's 7 to 10 additional years of training. And if we consider salaries of therapist credentialed with insurance, discussed later, the insurance broker makes more than both, both master's level and doctoral level therapists. Does anybody see something wrong with that? Consumers are paying the person they buy their insurance policy from more than they are paying their actual provider. It certainly speaks to where the bulk of the consumer's investment in their insurance plan goes. That is, to the cost of administering the plan, not in paying for actual medical services. In my opinion, the truth of these discrepancies is insulting, marginalizing, and sad for the field of mental health. I think these discrepancies reflect the values of our society. We place more value on manufacturing a widget. How fast our money can grow, moving our consumer goods across the country, and almost as much value on the training of our pets as we do on our own well-being. I suppose this is evident from the tenor of our country's spirit, but despite our despondency, we have failed to fully see and address this discrepancy. Logically speaking, how happy is a society going to be places consumerism over well-being Mental health provider salary under the insurance reimbursement model. Not only are the salary discrepancies between mental health professions and other professionals disconcerting, the numbers I've discussed aren't the full picture. Mental health salaries I've listed above are median salaries and not the actual salaries for a therapist in private practice accepting insurance. So, the numbers above include therapists who work for agencies, the VA system, for corporations, universities, etc. And the pay rates among these sectors vary significantly. One thing you might like to know before I discuss current insurance reimbursement rates is that the reimbursement rates for therapists used to be much higher than the $130 per session, which is at the higher end of the reimbursement spectrum, even without ingesting for inflation. 24 years ago, PhD-level therapists received insurance reimbursements that were higher than the current $130 a session, receiving reimbursements from that same insurer of $150 a session, which is the equivalent of $253 a session and 2018 with deregulation of healthcare and the transition to managed care, managing the cost of physical and mental health care, the reimbursement rates have dropped substantially. So how can insurance companies get by with reducing reimbursement rates by 51% without anyone noticing or complaining? A combination of factors, such as not adjusting for inflation, making small rate decreases over time, and the naivete of new generations of therapists unfamiliar with the old ways and old reimbursement rates, have made the reductions nearly invisible. Furthermore, mental health providers do not have any representation to advocate for fair wages, such as physicians do with the American Medical Association. Another factor that could take up an entire article is that the field of psychology has transitioned from being a male-dominated field to a female-dominated field, which is not the case for physical medicine. Physical medicine continues to be male-dominated. In 1970, around 30% of all PhDs in psychology were awarded to women. In 2008, over 70% were awarded to women. And from 2005 to 2013, the number of active female psychologists in the workforce rose 10%, from 58% to 68%, which is a fairly rapid shift. The gender disparity in salary in this country is undeniable. The shift from... The shift to a female majority in the field of psychology over time may help explain the shift, the decrease in reimbursement rates over time. The financial realities of reimbursement rates. Realistic client contact hours per week, vacation time, and overhead. When we first glance at reimbursement rates, for insurance credential providers, the rates might not seem too bad. Too bad. Insurance companies A, B, and C pay $130 per 53-minute session, whereas insurance companies D, E, and F pay $94 per 53-minute session for a doctoral-level psychologist. So at first glance, it would appear that mental health providers are making $94 to $130 per hour, and at 40 hours per week, that's a pretty great salary, $195,000 to $270,000 per year. Unfortunately, those numbers do not f- reflect reality. Therapists cannot provide 40 hours of therapy per, w- per week, provide a high level of care, and have time to take care of themselves. Therapists also cannot work 52 weeks per year, provide a high level of care, and take care of themselves. Further, a 195 dollars to $270,000 annual salary does not include overhead. The annual salary of an insurance credential provider looks much different if we take a more realistic view of the number of clients a therapist can see each week, the number of weeks of of vacation a therapist takes each year, and the overhead involved with running a small medical practice, which is a complex figure to accurately compute. Depending on the type of therapy a therapist does, the types of clients a therapist sees, the therapist's level of experience, the amount of internal process work a therapist has done, a therapist's sensitivity and entombment level, and how much a therapist believes in role modeling, boundaries, and self-care in their business, most therapists see between, between 10 and 20 clients per week. Some see as many as 25, but that's usually the upper limit. And I suspect that many therapists may want to see fewer clients than they actually see, but feel they need to see more clients because of financial constraints, social comparison, and some beliefs about martyrdom. In addition to number of clients seen each week, vacation time must be subtracted from the equation. The American standard for vacation time is two weeks per year. I don't think that two weeks is, is healthy for any American, and I would argue that therapists need to take substantially more vacation time than the average American if they want to prevent burnout and provide a high level of care to their clients. I believe that therapists should take a minimum of six weeks of vacation time each year, and preferably even more than that. Casey Truffaut recommends eight weeks. I personally take twelve weeks each year, 12 weeks each year, and I've noticed a reduction in burnout, An increase in my ability to provide quality care. After computing number of clients seen each week and weeks of vacation per year we need to compute basic overhead. My basic overhead per therapy hour per week is around $40 and I've heard other therapists quote a similar number but I would encourage the therapists reading this to calculate their individual overhead figure if you don't know it already. Basic overhead includes costs such as rent, transportation, office supplies, therapy materials, phone, website, advertising, billing, malpractice insurance, licensing, continuing education, personal therapy, consultation for business, clients, and legal matters, networking, etc. As I mentioned, overhead is a complex number. I'll first discuss estimated salary with basic overhead, and then I'll discuss aspects of overhead that are often overlooked. Wide variability in salary independent of therapist efficacy and effort level. We'll look at two therapists, both both with doctoral degrees in different scenarios, in order to get a better picture of the salary range. Therapist B is credentialed only with insurance company F, makes $94 per session and sees 10 clients per week, works 46 weeks per year, and pays $40 in overhead per session per week. Therapist, B actual, therapist B's actual reimbursement rate per session is $94 minus $40 per overhead, or $54 per session. At a rate of 10 clients per week and 46 weeks per year, therapist B's, B's annual salary is $24,840 per year. Therapist A was able to get a contract with one of the best health insurance companies in the state, so therapist A receives $130 per session. Therapist A sees more clients per week, 20, works 46 weeks per year, and pays $40 in overhead per session per week. Therapist A's actual reimbursement rate per session is $130 minus $40, or $90 per session. At a rate of 20 clients per week and 46 weeks per year, therapist A's annual salary is $82,000 per year. That's not too bad. Pay rates vary widely and somewhat arbitrarily depending on whether insurance companies with higher reimbursement rates and higher enrollment numbers are offering contracts in a particular area. This variability is not tied to treatment complexity, therapist effort level, or therapist efficacy. Let's compare treatment complexity, which is tied to effort level, using the hypothetical therapist from above. Therapist A lives in an area where insurance, co- insurance company A is offering new contracts at $130 a session rate. Therapist A's treatment specialty is personal growth. She utilizes a surface level goals-based treatment process, and her clients tend to be very high-functioning individuals diagnosed with adjustment disorder unspecified. She's able to see 20 clients per week. Therapist B lives in an area where only insurance company F was offering new contracts at the $94 an hour rate. Therapist B's treatment specialty is trauma treatment. She utilizes a deep internal processing approach to the clients that is effective, but intense and emotionally draining for her and her clients. Her clients are typically diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and major depressive disorder. Because of the intense work that she does with a high-risk population, therapist B is only able to see 10 clients per week, while still ensuring a high level of client care and time for personal care. Both therapists are great at what they do, but for reasons completely unrelated to their efficacy, treatment complexity, and effort level, therapist A makes much more than therapist B. In fact, therapist B can't even pay her bills. Often overlooked aspects of overhead, healthcare. Now for the aspects of overhead that are often overlooked, healthcare, retirement, self-employment tax, and student loan debt. Despite the fact that Therapists A and B technically work with health insurance companies, because because they are contract employees, they don't receive any of the benefits that go along with the drawbacks of being employed by a large company, like health insurance or retirement. So both therapists have to buy their individual health insurance on the open market. If we assume that both therapists are healthy, non-smoking women in their mid-30s and are only buying individual plans, they can expect costs ranging from $3,200 to $4,700, including only covering premium with no attempt to use the, the policy to pay for health care. And the cost can range up to $9,877 to $12,134, which is the cost of premium plus attempts to use the policy to pay for health care via their deductible per year. After paying for health insurance, Therapist A, who had an initial salary of $82,000, is bringing home between $78,723 and in $69,866, depending on whether she actually used her health insurance coverage or not, with an average of $74,295. Therapist B, with an initial salary of $24,840, it's bringing home between $21,563 and $12,706, with an average of $17,135. Retirement. Typical retirement contributions by employers use a match system of 50 50 cents per employee dollar contribution, up to 6% of employee's salary. The insurance company's contract employees are not eligible for an employer match, so we need to determine not only out-of-pocket retirement costs, but also the employer match amount as lost salary. If therapist A makes $82,000 per year and contributes 6% of her salary, that would be $4,920. the employer match is two thousand four hundred sixty dollars. In order to be on pace with their non-contract employed peers, Therapist A would need to budget four thousand nine hundred twenty dollars in personal contribution plus the 2460 four hundred sixty dollar missing employee match. Employer match, excuse me, for a total of seven thousand three hundred eighty dollars. If Therapist B makes $24,840 per year and contributes 6% of her salary, that would be $1,490. The missing employer match is $745. In order to be on pace with her non-contract employed peers, Therapist B would need to budget $1,490 personal contribution plus a $745 missing employer match, a total of $2,235. So how much are therapists A and B making after paying for their health insurance and retirement benefits out of pocket? If we take therapists A and B's average salaries after paying for insurance coverage, so $74,295 and $17,135 $135 respectively, and subtract retirement contributions of $7,380 and $2,235 respectively, we get a salary of we get a salary range of Um, let's see, $74,295 minus $7,380, which equals $66,915 for Therapist A, and $17,135 minus $2,235, which equals $14,899 for Therapist B. Self-employment tax. In addition to regular income taxes, Self-employed individuals have to pay self-employment tax. Self-employment tax rate is 15.3%, which covers Medicare and Social Security. For traditional non-contract employees, the Social Security and Medicare tax rate is 6.2% for each individual and 6.2% for each employer. Again, despite the fact that therapists A and B are technically employed by the health insurance companies, they are contract employees. So the insurance companies do not pay any part of the tax. Therapists A and B have to pay the entire amount. After paying for insurance and making a retirement contribution, Therapist A only has $66,915 remaining annual salary, and Therapist B has $14,899. Self-employment tax contributions for Therapist A and B are $10,238 and $2,280, respectively, leaving Therapist A with a salary of $56,677 and Therapist B with a salary of $12,619. If the therapists had been actual employees of the of the insurance companies, they would have reduced their tax rate by 9.1%, which is a savings of $6,089 for therapist A and $1,355 for therapist B. Student loan debt. Another aspect of overhead that's often overlooked and that's often overlooked in overhead calculations is student loan debt. Therapists A and B both have PhDs, which means they paid for at least 10 years of formal education and training, including their postdoctoral residency. The amount of student loan debt depends on the type of graduate program attended, scholarships, outside outside assistance, etc. But few individuals with graduate-level training can escape student loan debt. Just as any other small business would include conferences, continuing education, and other training in their overhead, mental health providers should include their most essential training costs, their degree, and their practice is overhead. Right now, therapists in private practice have some options for a loan repayment, including making full payments or or applying for an income-based reduced payment. Making a full payment is exactly what it sounds like. After loans come out of deferment, individuals follow the payment amount and schedule the lending company prescribes. And the second option, an income-based reduced payment. It uses a formula based upon income to determine the payment amount an individual can afford. At the end of 25 years, the remaining amount of the loan is discharged as income, not forgiven, as many people believe. In other words, individuals utilizing the income-based repayment plan will need to pay taxes on the remainder of the loan amount, and if they were only able to make small payments because their income was not commensurate with the amount of training and student loan debt they acquired, the loan amount will have grown astronomically. Let's let's apply the two scenarios, making regular payments and utilizing an income-based repayment plan, to our two hypothetical therapists. See Table 2. As I mentioned, both therapists A and B have doctoral degrees. Both receive scholarships, but with personal expenses and student loan expenses over the course of earning their degrees, they ended up with $205,000 in student loan debt. Note. If credit cards or personal loans were used to cover expenses during school and or the lean times in a new private practice, please include that debt and overhead calculations. That is considered part of training or business expenses. After therapist A and B paid for health insurance, retirement and self-employment tax, therapist A is left with $56,677 annually and therapist B is left with $12,619 annually. In scenario one, the therapist making payments according to the amount and schedule prescribed by the lending company, which is $2,245 per month or $26,940 annually until the loan is paid off, which is which would be approximately 10 years. After making required payments, therapist A is left with $29,737 annually and therapist B is left with negative $14,321 annually. In scenario two, therapists making income-based payments, and excuse me. In scenario two, the therapists make income-based payments, and at the end of twenty-five years, the balance is discharged as income. Therapist A's therapist A's income-based payment is four hundred four dollars per month, or four thousand eight hundred forty-eight dollars annually. After making this payment, therapist A's annual income is fifty-one thousand eight hundred twenty-nine dollars. At the end of twenty-five years, the remaining balance to be discharged. It's $304,307, and according to the tax calculator, Therapist A will pay $89,438 in taxes on that amount. If anyone's wondering which scenario is the most fiscally advantageous, it's scenario one, making the full payments each month. If Therapist A picks this option, Therapist A will pay a total of $273,890 on the original loan of $205,000. If therapist A picks scenario two, the income-based repayment plan, therapist A will make $208,876 in payments, plus will pay an income tax of $89,438 for a total payment of $298,314 on a $205,000 loan, which is a savings of $24,424. Utilizing scenario one. If the numbers seem a little off, it's because the repayment plan considers income growth in the algorithm, and I, I didn't go into detail about that here. In scenario two with therapist B, her income-based payment is zero per month because her income is so low. As such, her annual income remains at $12,619. At the end of 25 years, the remaining balance to be discharged is $512,500, and according to the tax calculator, Therapist B will pay $181,339 in taxes on that amount. If anyone's wondering which option is the most fiscally advantageous for Therapist B, it's Scenario 2, making the income-based repayment plan. If Therapist B picks this option, Therapist B will pay a total of $181,339 on the original loan of $205,000. If Therapist B picks Scenario 1, the payment plan prescribed by the lending company, Therapist B will make $273,890 in payments on the original loan amount of $205,000. Scenario 2, $273,890 minus Scenario 1, $181,339 equals $92,551 in savings. Further, Scenario 2 offers a $23,661 savings on the original loan amount $205,000 minus Table 1 provided a metric for comparing the value of higher education, so salary per years of education, and highlighted the low monetary value of education in the field of mental health. What Table 1 didn't highlight was the amount of debt that accumulates with each year of education. So not only do mental health providers spend employable years of their life not working so they can receive training and are paid poorly when they graduate, mental health providers incur significant, de- significant levels of debt during that time. The discussion above highlights the practical impact of this training debt. I hope that the discussion made it clear that someone with 10 years of training and a significant amount of student loan debt cannot afford to accept the reimbursement rates offered by insurance companies. A salary ranging from negative $14,321 to $29,737 is not practical to afford basic life expenses and is completely unacceptable for someone with 10 years of higher education. We all need to ask for more. We certainly deserve a better salary than negative $14,321 to $29,737. I mean, seriously, there's a negative number in the salary range. What are we doing to ourselves? Unbillable hours. A final, often overlooked aspect of overhead is unbillable hours. It's important to note that the number of client hours billed per week does not reflect the actual number of hours worked per week. If therapists are credentialed with insurance, they can estimate that they will spend an additional 30 minutes per client, per week, on various activities associated with insurance. For example, credentialing, contracting, paperwork to authorize additional sessions, going through EOBs to make sure sessions were reimbursed, determining client portion of payment and collecting payment from clients, calling the insurance companies to discuss discrepancies, spending time being upset about how much additional work they need to do to get paid, etc. Therapists are probably spending at least another 30 to 60 minutes per client, per week, on unpaid activities associated with their practice. For example, session preparation, notes, scheduling, marketing, networking, referrals, consultation, training, internal process work, etc. Using these numbers, therapists who accept insurance spend 60 to 90 minutes per client per week outside of session on client-related activities. Taken together, these therapists are spending between 2 and 2.5 total hours per week per client on practice-related activities or 20 to 50 hours total per week, depending upon if this client, the therapist sees 10 or 20 clients per week. This time doesn't include self-care time essential for recharging to show up, show up fully for work with clients. I'll discuss that later. To reiterate, providers who accept insurance spend 5 to 10 hours each week, depending on client load, above and beyond their regular duties just dealing with the insurance process. That is time that is given away, Your precious time for free. Let's look at what the reimbursement rates look like after paying basic overhead and after factoring in the unbillable time required to accept insurance. Insurance company A reimburses at $130 per billable hour and insurance company F reimburses at $94 per billable hour. Each company requires a half an hour of unbillable hours per billable hour for a total of 1.5 hours of required work billable and unbillable. Overhead is $40 per billable hour. That means that the hourly rate for insurance company A is 130 minus 40, or $90, divided by 1.5 total hours. That number is $60 per hour. The hourly rate for insurance company F is 94 minus 40, or $54, divided by 1.5 total hours. That number is $36 per hour. The actual reimbursement rates are much lower than they appear in the contract you sign each year, and although insurance company A's rate still doesn't seem that bad, insurance company F's rate of $36 per hour is pretty low. And wouldn't it be nice if your contract reflected your actual hourly rate of reimbursement? I think that's called full disclosure. If we take this a step further and enter the total time spent on insurance, practice, and client-related activities per week, which is 2 to 2.5 hours per client, The numbers are much lower. The hourly rate under contract with insurance company A is 130 minus 40, which equals 90, divided by 2.5 or 2 hours total hours, which is $36 to $45 per hour. The hourly rate under contract with insurance company F is 130 minus 40, which is 54, divided by 2.5 to 2 total hours, which is $21.6 to $27 per hour. Furthermore, I've chosen to present these numbers with only the basic overhead and haven't included other factors such as number of billable hours that are practical in a given week, vacation time, or the often overlooked aspects of overhead such as benefits, self-employment tax, and student loan debt. So make no mistake, therapists are not actually making the $21.60 to $45 an hour hourly rate I use for illustrative purposes here.